This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc Section 6 that excellent consummation of human society passed, as we know, and was in certain provinces of Europe, but more particularly in Britain, destroyed. For a society in which the determinate mass of families were owners of capital and of land, for one in which production was regulated by self-governing corporations of small owners, and for one in which the misery and insecurity of a proletariat was unknown, there came to be substituted the dreadful moral anarchy against which all moral effort is now turned, and which goes by the name of capitalism. How did such a catastrophe come about? Why was it permitted? And upon what historical process did the evil batten? What turned an England economically free into the England which we know today, of which at least one-third is indigent, of which nineteen-twentieths are dispossessed of capital and of land, and of which the whole industry and national life is controlled upon its economic side by a few chance directors of millions, a few masters of unsocial and irresponsible monopolies. The answer most usually given to this fundamental question in our history, and the one most readily accepted, is that this misfortune came about through a material process known as the Industrial Revolution. The use of expensive machinery, the concentration of industry and of its implements, are imagined to have enslaved, in some blind way, apart from the human will, the action of English mankind. The explanation is wholly false. No such material cause determined the degradation from which we suffer. It was the deliberate action of men, evil will in a few, and apathy of will among the many, which produced a catastrophe as human in its causes and its inception as in its vile effect. Capitalism was not the growth of the industrial movement, nor of chance material discoveries. A little acquaintance with history, and a little straightforwardness in the teaching of it, would be enough to prove that. The industrial system was a growth proceeding from capitalism, not its cause. Capitalism was here in England before the industrial system came into being, before the use of coal and of the new expensive machinery and of the concentration of the implements of production in the great towns. Had capitalism not been present before the industrial revolution, that revolution might have proved as beneficent to Englishmen as it has proved maleficent. But capitalism, that is, the ownership by a few of the springs of life, was present long before the great discoveries came. It warped the effect of these discoveries and new inventions, and it turned them from a good into an evil thing. It was not machinery that lost us our freedom. It was the loss of a free mind. Section 4 how the distributive state failed. With the close of the Middle Ages, the societies of Western Christendom and England, among the rest, were economically free. 
Property was an institution native to the state and enjoyed by the great mass of its citizens. Cooperative institutions, voluntary regulations of labor, restricted the completely independent use of property by its owners only in order to keep that institution intact and to prevent the absorption of small property by great. This excellent state of affairs, which we had reached after many centuries of Christian development, and in which the old institution of slavery had been finally eliminated from Christendom, did not everywhere survive. In England in particular it was ruined. The seeds of the disaster were sown in the sixteenth century. Its first apparent effects came to light in the seventeenth. During the eighteenth century England came to be finally, though insecurely, established upon a proletarian basis. That is, it had already become a society of rich men possessed of the means of production on the one hand, and a majority dispossessed of those means upon the other. With the nineteenth century the evil plant had come to its maturity, and England had come before the close of that period, a purely capitalist state, the type and model of capitalism for the whole world. With the means of production tightly held by a very small group of citizens, and the whole determining mass of the nation dispossessed of capital and land, and dispossessed therefore in all cases of security, and in many of sufficiency as well. The mass of English men, still possessed of political, lacked more and more the elements of economic freedom, and were in a worse posture than free citizens have ever found themselves before in the history of Europe. By what steps did so enormous a catastrophe fall upon us? The first step in the process consisted in the mishandling of a great economic revolution, which marked the sixteenth century. The lands and the accumulated wealth of the monasteries were taken out of the hands of their old possessors, with the intention of vesting them in the crown. But they passed, as a fact, not into the hands of the crown, but into the hands of an already wealthy section of the community who, after the change was complete, became in the succeeding hundred years the governing power of England. This is what happened. The England of the early sixteenth century, the England over which Henry the Eighth inherited his powerful crown in youth, though it was an England in which the great mass of men owned the land, they tilled, and the houses in which they dwelt, and the implements with which they worked, was yet an England in which these goods, though widely distributed, were distributed unequally. Then as now the soil and its fixtures were the basis of all wealth, but the proportion between the value of the soil and its fixtures, and the value of other means of production, implements, stores of clothing, and of subsistence, etc., was different from what it is now. The land and the fixtures upon it formed a very much larger fraction of the totality of the means of production than they do today. They represent today not one-half the total means of production of this country, and though they are the necessary foundation for all wealth production, yet our great machines, our stores of food and clothing, our coal and oil, our ships, and the rest of it, come to more than the true value of the land, and of the fixtures upon the land. They come to more than the arable soil and the pasture, the constructional value of the houses, wharves and docks, and so forth. In the early sixteenth century, the land and the fixtures upon it came 
upon the contrary, to very much more than all the other forms of wealth combined. Now this form of wealth was here, more than in any other Western European country, already in the hands of a wealthy landowning class at the end of the Middle Ages. It is impossible to give exact statistics, because none were gathered, and we can only make general statements based upon inference and research. But roughly speaking, we may say that the total value of the land and its fixtures, probably rather more than a quarter, though less than a third, was in the hands of this wealthy class. The England of that day was mainly agricultural and consisted of more than four but less than six million people. And in every agricultural community you would have the Lord, as he was legally called, the squire, as he was already conversationally termed, in possession of more land than in any other country. On the average you found him, I say, owning in this absolute fashion rather more than a quarter, perhaps a third, of the land of the village. In the towns the distribution was more even. Sometimes it was a private individual who was in this position, sometimes a corporation, but in every village you would have found this land absolutely owned by political head of the village occupying a considerable proportion of its acreage. The rest, though distributed as property among the less fortunate of the population, and carrying with it houses and implements from which they could not be dispossessed, paid certain dues to the Lord, and what was more, the Lord exercised local justice. This class of wealthy landowners had been also, now for one hundred years, the justices upon whom local administration depended. The distributive failed. There was no reason why this state of affairs should not gradually have led to the rise of the peasant and the decay of the lord. That is what happened in France, and it might perfectly well have happened here. A peasantry eager to purchase might have gradually extended their holdings at the expense of the land and to the distributive property, which was already fairly complete there might have been added another excellent element, namely the more equal possession of that property. But any such process of gradual buying by the small man from the great as such would seem natural to the temper of us European people, and such has since taken place nearly everywhere in countries which were left free to act upon their popular instincts, was interrupted in this country by an artificial revolution of the most violent kind, this artificial revolution consisted in the seizing of the monastic lands by the crown. It is important to grasp clearly the nature of this operation, for the whole economic future of England was to flow from it. Of the lands and the power of local administration which they carried with them, a very important feature, as we shall see later, rather more than a quarter were in the hands of the church. The church was therefore the lord of something over 25%, say 28%, or perhaps nearly 30% of English agricultural communities, and the overseers of a like proportion of all English agricultural produce. The church was further the absolute owner in practice of something like 30% of the lands in the villages, and the receiver of something like 30% of the customary dues paid by the small owners to the greater. All this economic power lay, until 1535, in the hands of the cathedral chapters, communities of monks and nuns, educational establishments conducted by the clergy, and so forth. When the monastic lands were confiscated by Henry the Eighth, 
not the whole of this vast economic influence was suddenly extinguished. The secular clergy remained endowed, and most of the educational establishments, though looted, retained some revenue. But though the whole thirty percent did not suffer confiscation, something well over twenty percent did. And the revolution affected by this vast operation was by far the most complete, the most sudden, and the most momentous of any that has taken place in the economic history of any European people. It was at first intended to retain this great mass of the means of production in the hands of the crown. That must be clearly remembered by any student of the fortunes of England, and by all who marvel at the contrast between the old England and the new. Had that intention been firmly maintained, the English state and its government would have been the most powerful in Europe. The executive, which in those days meant the king, would have had a greater opportunity for crushing the resistance of the wealthy, for backing its political power with economic power, and for ordering the social life of its subjects than any other executive in Christendom. Had Henry the Eighth and his successors kept the land thus confiscated, the power of the French monarchy, at which we are astonished, would have been nothing to the power of the English. The King of England would have had in his own hands an instrument of control of the most absolute sort. He would presumably have used it, as a strong central government always does, for the weakening of the wealthier classes, and to the indirect advantage of the mass of the people. At any rate, it would have been a very different England, indeed, from the England we know, if the king had held fast to his own after the dissolution of the monasteries. Now it is precisely here that the capital point in this great revolution appears. The king failed to keep the lands he had seized. That class of large landowners, which already existed and controlled, as I have said, anything from a quarter to a third of the agricultural values of England, were too strong for the monarchy. They insisted upon land being granted to themselves, sometimes freely, sometimes for ridiculously small sums, and they were strong enough in Parliament, and through the local administrative power they had, to see that their demands were satisfied. Nothing that the Crown let go ever went back to the Crown, and year after year more and more of what had once been the monastic land became the absolute possession of the large landowners. End of section 6